Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Nighthawk calling. Welcome to another segment of History Hack. So help me God, wait till you hear what she's done to me today. She has put me on with guys with a Welsh accent. I yes, don't no. understand the Welsh. I'm sorry, guys. I love you all, but I just... Before she alienates the whole of Wales, this is because she's led a a stupidly sheltered life between East London and Poland, um, and she (laughs) spends her entire life in musty libraries, and she just basically can't understand what you're saying, is is what she's getting at. She's also got the hump, because um, we're here today to try and fill the sporting void. We've got with us today, I'm thrilled, and, and... you can suck it, Alina. We've got Ben Jones and Gareth Thomas with us, who between them form the award-winning Football History Boys. Um, we're going to talk about their book, Football's 50 Most Important Moments, which is out in a couple of weeks. But first of all, guys, you're both in Cardiff. How is it there? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you very much for having us. As I was saying uh, just before that we love in the podcast so far, listening back to them, they've been brilliant. Um, yeah, it's good. We're, we're both teachers, so I'm setting work from home and dealing with emails of students and things like that it's, it's a bit of an odd one for for teachers and students at the moment really really strange but um you know thankfully we're, we're getting through it you still got to go yes, in like uh, a couple of days a week haven't you to well not now it's i think it's easter now isn't it but haven't you got to like rotate who goes in to deal with the children that still have to go yeah i've been in uh i've been once so far last week to um to look after three children um because uh, they're the ones who have been looked after uh, the key workers uh, kids but um yeah it's not be too bad just setting work over uh, online and stuff so we've been talking um to different guests about different aspects of coronavirus if you like we're sort of putting together our own little oral history of this nightmare and uh, do you know what the one the one today i want to talk about is <laughs> i was talking to josh levine who was on last week talking about the blitz and he uh, he said he thinks he's finally lost his mind he bought the other day um a, ma- a massive 
gas barbecue. He's got no interest in barbecuing anything. <laughs> he's never owned a barbecue. He didn't want a barbecue and he spent a fortune on it. But I would say, no, I think this is actually a thing because Gary Sheffield, a renowned World War One historian, was moaning on Twitter the other day that he's been out and bought all these books he doesn't need. Um, with me, it's art supplies. I mean, Arteza have made a fortune out of me. I don't have any time to even do any art, but I keep ordering paint and now they've linked in with me on my Facebook and they've realised I'm a sucker. Every time I check my social media, there's more adverts for more snazzy paint and and i order again guys have you gone loopy i have yeah i've um i've gone to b and q and bought a lot of uh paint to do my hallway so uh a lot of doi supplies and uh yeah that's about it really that's all i've been doing this week i've, I've downloaded the sims 4 i've gone back to my <laughs> teams and downloaded the sims and i've been playing the sims for hours on end <laughs> there's there's no point asking Alina this because she's not allowed out of her house so she hasn't bought anything um, <laughs> she's in Polish quarantine uh, which hopefully will be up very very soon but guys let's go let's start with your book man this is great how do you go about picking only 50 moments that have defined the history of football uh, well it's really difficult um, it's really difficult to get the initial 50 moments because obviously there's so many big big moments in football history and we we sort of said in the introduction that you know everyone's 50 would be different but we've decided to choose uh, a, a bunch that have changed the status quo uh, or so we think anyway so uh moments which some that we know quite well and some that we don't know as much which we thought we were good so we could uh research them ourselves and really get stuck into the actual primary research and things um but yeah it's, it's quite difficult because there's so many big moments which we haven't been able to include in the book which one for each of you you get one each um that broke your heart to leave out other than munich 2012 of course which is the finest moment in football history <laughs> Drogba's penalty uh, but yeah go on <laughs> and do you know what the actual moment was ashley cole's face when it went in but yeah go on one that uh, <laughs> broke your hearts to leave out i think for me um being a Cardiff City season ticket holder, but but you know wider than that, it had a bigger impact. Would be Cardiff City probably winning the FA Cup in 1927. A couple of reasons. I mean, obviously massive because it's the only ever Welsh team to do it or non-English team. Um, also, that it was the first ever radio live broadcast of an FA Cup final. So that one's quite an important moment, really. And, you know, from there that forms the football that we see today. Eventually, you know, on TV, live, and all that. Uh, the different aspects of that. So I think it was quite an important one. So that is an art. We've got an honourable mention section at the back. And so uh, we put that one in there. Uh, mine would be um, well, it's difficult because obviously Liverpool is who I support, so I've got their biggest moment in there. But uh, God, I think... if I'd known that, I wouldn't have invited you on. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> you've got from, yeah, from you've what, got um... you've got Istanbul in there, haven't you? I oh, yeah, I snuck it in. But uh, yeah. from what uh, my friends have been telling me, it's probably leaving out. Arsenal's Invincibles, I think, is probably the one that uh, a few of my mates have got a bit irritated about. But yeah. so I'll get to that later because I like what you did there instead of putting that in. Um, but uh, let, let's you've, what you've done really nicely. What I like is that it's a it's a mixture of sort of great games. Um, tragedies that have affected the game and changed things, uh, the unexpected, and also the development of the game as well. Um, Alina, let's start with best teams. Put something to the guys and let's, let's hear them argue it out. Um, uh, this has been scripted for me, so I'm really no, I don't like working from a script. Just but do it. What's the best, 
Oh no! Oh no! What's the best team ever? No, you've got to Is start the with the yeah. But aunt, can you ask it like a <laughs> professional and not like you're drunk? <laughs> <laughs> I got I got locked out. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit. She did just get booted right, out, okay. and she's just got back in the chat. So yeah, go on. Yeah, it's probably like I got really annoyed. Start swearing at the computer. Anyway, <clears throat> so obviously we can talk about this for like hours and hours on end or rather you lot can because I clearly can't um what is the best team ever go on guys um that's a massive question as we said you can talk for hours and hours and there's so many different ones I mean for me I quite like looking at the Neely teams there, there's tons we can talk about and, and me and Ben have talked about this over the years that we've we've written and worked together um Two for me that I think should be included, even though they didn't actually do anything. So one would be the Hungarian side of the 1950s, the early 1950s. They were unbelievable. And we'll come on to a moment with them later. Um, and they, they never won the World Cup. They lost in the 54 World Cup final. And I think had they won that, they would have been considered one of the best. Another one would be the 74 uh, Dutch side, the Holland side in the, the 74 World Cup. Total football um, under Renus Michels and uh, Johan Cruyff leading it. And they were superb they don't quite make it either because they don't win the World Cup. And so I like looking at those Neely teams that maybe, you know, who knows where they would have gone if they got there. But Ben, what would you say? I'd say, uh, and I think Alex might not be happy with this, but um, Barcelona, uh, 2008 to 2012, a team which had a, quite a few big battles with Chelsea over the years. But <laughs> they're probably, for me, <laughs> for me, the greatest team. Go on, give me one that you've included in your book, though. Um, that I want you to tell me about because I don't remember. Um, I don't know how you guys do because I think you're even younger than me. You put Holland 1992 in your book. Uh, yeah. Sorry, right, let me do that again. <laughs> <laughs> one thing, that, uh, give me this one because I don't know how you guys remember it because I don't and you're even younger than me. Uh, you put Denmark, the Denmark side of 1992 in your book, didn't you? Yeah, we, we did put them in. Um, they're a surprise team really because they qualified for the the Euros that year, despite um, actually having not qualified, uh, because Yugoslavia had qualified instead, but because of the, the wars going on at the same time, uh, they had to be removed from the tournament. So Denmark were brought in right just before it started, and uh, they ended up winning the whole thing uh, out of nowhere. And I think they sort of played quite a negative brand of football, a lot of passbacks and things, which uh, eventually then led to the, uh, the passback rule being introduced the following season. But they're a great team. They had some fantastic players. Brian Loudrup was playing for the side. Um, yeah, they were a re really good side, to be fair. Um, my, my best mate, Charlie, is going to be uh, mortified that you haven't mentioned the Brazil side in 1970, though. Well, I was, I was just writing about them now, actually. Uh, for, we're writing a new book at the moment. Just put it out there. Um, yeah, go on, tell us. And, what's uh, it about? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about... Uh, it's about the, the history of the football in 90 minutes, so different uh, moments for different minutes of the game. But oh, cool. uh, the 86th minute is uh, Carlos Alberto's um, uh, final goal, uh, which is like really well known now as being probably the best goal in World Cup history. Uh, but that 1970 side was, uh, was, was incredible, really. And they, it was really good to research because they were showing how they had to put loads of, uh, loads of effort before the tournament into developing this sort of um, uh, understanding between them all. Um, and then they, they won playing beautiful football uh, against uh, sort of a negative Italian side, so it was good. Um, 
one thing you've done, I've uh, mentioned it already, is you've looked at sort of defining moments in the game that were defining for all the wrong reasons. Um, you've got some of the tragedies that have affected football in the book. Um, I particularly was interested in the ones that involved fans um, as a match-going fan myself. Uh, obviously, you don't leave your house to go to football and think you might not come home. Um, and there have been some tragedies that shaped the game. So this, this is Charlie again, because he found out you were coming on and I had to put up with him on the phone for nearly an hour. Um, he says, Heisel could have been avoided... Hillsborough should have been avoided, but there's just only one for him that's just a hideous and terrible twist of fate. And you've put the Bradford fire in your book, haven't you? Do you agree with him? Yeah, I think so. So for me, um, I wrote the tragedy section. These these three sort of moments, we, we looked at them. Um, it's something I also teach about. Um, in, in Wales, we're going to curriculum review at the moment, and it's very much sort of student-led um, and so we've, they've merged the, the history, geography and RE together. And we, we do humanities. And as part of that, I'm obviously being a football historian, a sport historian, was able to bring in lessons about these uh, couple of tragedies to teach the kids about it, to talk about the wider impact, to show that actually sports history isn't just, you know, something you do on the weekend. Sports history matters. Um, and so, yeah, Bradford was, was terrible. 1985, the 11th of May, 1985, a fan, um, some people think he was an Australian visitor, was smoking in the game. He, he dropped um, his cigarette through the wooden slats in the wooden stands. It, it congregated with the um, rubbish underneath and the, the sort of the tinder underneath the stand really ignited. And at the start, it was quite a small fire, but within seven or eight minutes, if you've ever watched the footage of that, um, it is on YouTube, it, quite hard to watch. But within about seven or eight minutes, the whole stand has been engulfed. 56 fans lose their lives. 265 are injured, uh, a terrible, terrible disaster that really, really should never have happened. Part of the problem was that Bradford were in the third division and so any laws um, about the quality of stadia hadn't hit them at that point. And so the, uh, the club hadn't improved their stands. And so what it led to was this dreadful scene. I mean, the commentator that day um, is a guy called John Helm and he commentates whilst this is happening and is just talking about the, the horrifying scene as people lose their lives. But yeah, I mean, combined with that, and, and as your, your friend's quote says, um, it leads to what's called the Popperwell Report, because that month, the 11th of May, 1985, um, was the Bradford fire. The same day, a 15-year-old Birmingham City fan is killed, a guy called Ian Hambridge, on the same day uh, because of violence, because of hooliganism. And then at the end of that month, on the 29th of May, is the Heisel disaster. And... Liverpool fans and Juventus fans clash at the European Cup final and many, many fans are killed there again. That's real, a real tragedy. But the popular report, and that's what historians have looked at, actually because of the violence, it doesn't lead to stadium improvements because it's focused on the violence. And so what the kids in my class and what actually the government do, their suggestion was for the violence, what we should do is cage fans. We should put fans um, in harder cages put the you know, police them more strongly and of course eventually that leads to the disaster at Hillsborough and so all of these are tied together as massive social bits of history really you said you, do, you don't go to a game and think you're not going to come back again you don't wave your son your daughter your dad off and and, and you know don't expect not to come back and so major major moments that we've included all three of these and obviously Hillsborough at the moment is going through legal uh, through the court still and there's lots that we can't say or can't write about yet but even so, you know, these are fundamentally important British history moments rather than just sport history moments. Let's move on to some more cheerful yeah. stuff. Uh, the, you've covered the unexpected. Um, Alina, do you want to come in and ask this one? 
Leicester winning the league. I know it's in recent memory, but you've got Blackburn in 1995 too. Who wins the prize for the most unexpected and glorious club moment? Gee. Oh, good question. Um, I don't know. For me, Leicester City is up there because of like when it was. I think the fact that it was so recent in a game that's now dominated by money, in a game where money is king, and yet this Leicester City side is so cheaply put together. You know, Mares less than a million. Kante was he about a million pounds as well. And the fact that they were able to win the league in the modern, the modern era is just stunning. Blackburn's good. There's no doubt Blackburn is good. But for me, that that Leicester City will never be forgotten. I mean, I, I I still can't believe it happens when you look back on it. And then obviously we tied it into the book as well that there's the recent tragedy then where they lost their owner, wasn't it? Veach guy was killed a few years later. The guy who put the whole thing together and funded that was killed quite tragically as well. So it's, it's a moment that, that goes beyond the fact that they won the league. But that was that was insane. I mean, Jamie Varney's 11 goals in a row in 11 matches. Just just a ridiculous moment. Ben, I don't know if you have any different. Um, well, I, I agree with you, uh, Gaz. Um, I mean, Blackburn was impressive, but they did at the time. They had they did have financial backing and they had uh, Kenny Daglish as a manager who had won previous league titles in England. Uh, Alan Shearer, one of the best strikers at the time as well. So they had, you know, these well-known players in, the, and this, in this well-known team. Um, and you know, the season before, they'd done all right in the league. Uh, whereas, like you say, Leicester sort of came out of nowhere and they only just avoided relegation the season before. And two years before that, they were in the championship. So, yeah, I mean, I'd probably agree with you there, mate, Leicester. It's hard to disagree with either of you, to be honest. And also as well, it's like, I look at Kante now and I think like <laughs> 10 years ago, he was working on a building site and then he kind of exploded yeah. in that season. And it was just like, it's like there's three of him. Well, Jamie Vardy was working in a prosthetic factory, Jamie Vardy, and all those amazing moments. Or people working in, you know, in shops and things like that before. They, they, they're put together so cheaply and yet they did something so spectacular. Because everyone thought they were going to slip up, didn't they? But they, they just didn't. They just kept going. Like you say, it's just been compounded since the helicopter crash and that awful, awful accident that took the guy that did it for them um, away from them. Um, Looking at the development of the game, you've chosen a few key moments um, in the book. You've put the disease of professionalism, which I kind of touched on in my book about Chelsea and the First World War. Um, The Bosman ruling is another one. Um, Have have a chat about those ones and then I'll introduce the one that's going to haunt us all for years to come, I think. But yeah, talk to us about some of the early developmental stuff that you covered. Uh, So professionalism, yeah, of course, that's when uh, players first started to get paid or first started to be uh, recognised as being paid. Um, We talk in the earlier bit of the book about the game's introduction and how it was a sort of a gentleman's sport, which which was born out of the... uh, the public schools and the public school alumni all, all playing it, but with an increase of leisure time given to the working classes towards the end of the 19th century, um, they had you know more time to play sport This because the sport revolution was going on behind the scenes. And football for them was the least violent of, uh, of the big games because they had rugby and football to choose from and football was less violent than rugby. And if they played rugby, there was a big chance they could get seriously injured and then they'd be out of work for a long time. So, uh, they play football and they're quite good at it, which means in order to play football, they need to be paid to cover their losses of not working. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how that develops. And then with the, the gate receipts from the matches, there's more and more money gets pumped in. But even with this, uh, them getting paid, they, you know, footballers' pay wasn't incredible, 
uh, after that, it was sort of a relatively good wage. And then eventually, as we touch upon later in the book, uh, 1960s, the uh, removal of the maximum wage is what, uh, you know, really kickstarts this massive boom in football and the, the, the financial side. Yeah, and then obviously, I mean, we've got the, the maximum wages wage removed, but the Bosman ruling is incredibly important. The reason that's there um, is because effectively, and, and it's, it's one of those that's debated in terms of his importance. So Alex Ferguson says it ruins football. For the footballers, though, it gives them this freedom to be able to move clubs. Uh, before this, if you your contract run out, you would then... Uh, you'd still be tied to that club that another club would have to come in and pay a transfer fee even if your contract expired and what happened with Bosman Jean-Marc Bosman he he wanted to fight against this and so he took um, his club to the European Court of Justice um, and it led to eventually the ruling coming in that footballers were now able to move on on a free transfer and it, you know, free transfers come because of that and then, of course there's been many famous free transfers Chelsea benefited from some and they you know famous I guess Sol Campbell moving from Tottenham to Arsenal there's been major free transfers and obviously they're really important because what it does whether we like it or not is it hands the power now to the agents and to the, the players isn't it because they can say well I'm not going to sign this contract I'm going to leave them a free transfer and so there's lots of negatives but of course there's lots of positives in terms of the rights of a player anyway so that, that's why that's included as an important Personally, I'd have listed this next one under a tragedy because um, I've done nothing but slate it. But I honestly think we're going to look back in 10 years' time if they don't get their shit together and, and say that VAR is uh, is massive. You've included it, haven't you, um, from its sort of origins, but yeah. obviously not covered this season and what an absolute... Are you for or against? I mean, I, I sat in... Uh, I got taken to Stockley Park and sat on some conference where they tried to sell it to you, how amazing it was going to be. And actually, all that's happened is all the things that they said they were using as benchmarks and that they were going to do um, is just rubbish because it just applies sometimes it doesn't apply other times and they're not even following their own rules where do you stand on it I this is well maybe we'll have to leave this and have this another time maybe but for me I, I am pro VAR I think I'm pro VAR from the implementation of the World Cup I think it worked I think it had to come in, you know, it's not me being bitter, but last season, I'm sure you remember, it's Chelsea fan, Azpilicueta, a mile off side against Cardiff City, effectively relegates us, and being so far off Sorry. side, we would have potentially <laughs> won that game. Um, but no, beyond that, I, I understand that the frustration of it, I just think it's been, the implementation is, is not there at the moment, because the Premier League tried to do things differently. Had they followed what was happening across Europe, we would have seen it, perhaps, it viewed in a different light. But also, where VAR, the issue is, is, is coming in the same time as the new handball rule, for example. So the Declan Rice one um, from a couple of months back where he handballed it on the way to goal. Yes, it was an accident, handball. The issue is not VAR there, the handball rule. The handball said if it touches his hand in, on the way to a goal, then it should be ruled out. Um, VAR just means that we now don't miss those. They would have been missed beforehand and, they, and, and this is now not missed because of VAR. And so, um, you know, I, I think we need to withhold massive judgment onto it until the things like the offside law how is that going to change you know are we going to just do feet are we going to just do the part of the body that scored there are issues but i don't think that's vast fault i think the rules of the game perhaps need slight adjusting for it here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think Alina was about to ask what the offside rule is, but we definitely don't have time for that today. Um, I'll tell you another time, Alina. Um, let's move on to some players, because you, you included uh, some big personalities in the book. Um, Pele, George Best. Pick your favourite. Who did most for the game? Uh, I'll answer this one then. Um, Pele, I think he's probably the best at that budge. Uh, you know, he, he really revolutionised the game in the late 50s and then in, into the 60s. Uh, he brought this Brazilian side, which was a, a side of underachievers. He brought them into the mainstream. Uh, they'd had the tragedy of losing the 1950 World Cup final. And then 1958 pops up. He's a 17-year-old, you know, scores six goals to uh, help them win the, the World Cup. And uh, then they win it. He wins it twice more again. So he has three world uh, titles to his name. Unfortunately, his only drawbacks probably not playing in Europe. He only played in the Brazilian League and, um, and, uh, and the US as well. But I think for the game, he's that, he's that name when you're growing up. He's one of the first real big football names you hear of uh, for what he did for the game. G? <laughs> Zidane is, is incredibly important. Obviously, that headbutt, what a way to leave the world stage, um, to headbutt your way out of the, the <laughs> international game. Um, is that why you included him? That is moment. that the moment that you've put? Because I've seen that there's a chapter yeah. called Zidane. Yeah, that is the moment. But obviously, talking about his wider career too, because he had an immense career. And obviously, now he's gone on to win numerous champions. They were Real Madrid as well. Another guy as well, I think, needs included. Someone like Johan Cruyff, who... When we're talking about players who don't quite make it as managers or the other way around, managers who didn't make it as players, Cruyff is probably the best one. Zidane's trying to follow him. But Cruyff is the best player and then the best manager as well. So I think he deserves an inclusion into the, the greatest ever because he's someone who transitioned into management perfectly. Sorry, go back to Zidane. He, he, his moment in that final, he sort of, because at the beginning of the game, he scores a penalty, which is a chip. He does a Penenka chip. And he, that game sort of, uh, you know, brought everything about Zidane to life the sort of the artistry that he has in uh, sort of running the game but also he had that uh, tendency to lose his head at times throughout his career and he had a lot of red cards and then uh, like it showed uh, on, the, in the, on the chest of Matarazzi with that headbutt you know I think I've written in the book you know his career is often seen as a work of art but then it you know there's always these uh, few blotches few stains which ruin it all right, we're gonna we're not gonna debate this because we don't have a year. You get one word to answer this next question with, right? Alina, you can go first. Are you ready? Messi or Ronaldo? Ronaldo. Good answer. Mine's Ronaldo too, guys. <laughs> Messi. Ah, Messi for me. It's a draw, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, I did a, a book um, myself about football history in that I did I just Chelsea FC in World War One, um, 
but I was really talking about the broader impact of the war on football as well with uh, Andrew Holmes and we talked a lot about how football was perceived but there was one thing I didn't touch and it gets on Alina's nerves oh yeah totally because um women football like and the great war what happened it's a bit of a hit talk to us um yeah women's football is amazing the story in the uh, the first order or um it's it's quite irrelevant now actually because with the coronavirus going on we're, we're starved of football and it was dri- driving us all mad um and the same happened in the first world war with uh you know after the 1915 fa cup final which chelsea uh played in uh yeah, we got rightly was... battered but yeah <laughs> <laughs> the uh the football league was suspended and uh you know people didn't have football and when they heard about you know a couple of years later this uh this women's game going on I think people were just a bit curious, thinking, oh, I, I just want to watch anything. So they turned up at their match, not expecting much. And then they were really surprised to see how good these women players were. Because what had been happening behind the scenes was in these munition factories, the, the women's players had all been uh, having kick-arounds in the, in the, uh, the yards and things and uh, decided to develop a team. So when they came together, they, they really surprised a lot of people in how good they were. And gradually, attendances grew and grew and grew. And then after the war, then they had um, uh, almost 60,000 came to watch them at um, Goodison Park. So they really were drawn in these massive, uh, massive uh, attendances. Um, let's talk about Invincibles. You mentioned... Uh one of them earlier on thanks to Watford we don't have to discuss my least favourite team no matter what happens now with this season um, and you left Arsenal out and you said that that's been a bit contentious maybe with some of your friends but meh we've heard enough about them being invincible they've done nothing but talk about it for the last 20 years because they've had so little else to be gleeful about you went a completely different way didn't you so talk to us about Preston North End um, yeah, Preston, Preston North End were unbelievable. I mean, they're the first Invincibles, football's first Invincibles. The season 1888-1889, um, just after the founding of the Football League. And then um, we get the first ever Invincible season. I mean, it, it obviously, people wondered whether it would go that way and that you'd have teams dominating it. It doesn't. It doesn't happen for years and years after. It doesn't happen again in English football until Arsenal. And so this team are definitely worthy of Um Just after the league's founded, not a very big league, of course, but they go through, they win not only the league that season, but they also win the FA Cup too. They concede not very many goals, but I mean, in terms of the FA Cup, they, they beat Hyde 26-0. Um, they, they, they absolutely yeah, dominate the league. And, you know, this size should be rightly included. And there's, some, there's a book coming out um, by someone else soon, I can't forget his name, but it, uh, about this team, because they, they are worthy of inclusion. Often they've forgotten, people talk about the Arsenal team, like the greatest team ever, and that's why we felt we could drop that Arsenal team, because actually this team did it first, Preston did it first, and when you look at the list of Invincibles, if you ever Google it, there's not many, but they are there, and they are the first, and they did a League and Cup double, so we definitely think they should be included. I think with um, with with Preston as well, it's it's the wider moment, isn't it, that they uh, the, the founder of the football league in the same season. So that's like such a big statement of the professional clubs at the time. But also with Arsenal, I feel like well, personally, I felt they didn't really have a strong legacy after the season because they won the FA Cup the following year and then didn't win anything else then for almost a decade. So I felt the legacy wasn't as strong with them as it is with uh, with Preston. 
Well, and they drew so many games as well, isn't it? I don't want to hammer the, the Invincibles because they were a great side, but they also, when you look at their points totals, that points total's been bettered a number of times, isn't it, really? Yeah. So it did Preston go out and actually win all of these games whilst being Invincible then? Yeah, I mean, they played um, they played 22 matches, so you know, obviously far less than Arsenal because there's only 12 teams in the league. They won 18 and drew four. They did that, though, scoring 74 goals. Um, their top goal scorer, John Goodall, with 20 goals. Um, but then, as you said, like the FA Cup as well, they were unbeaten in that, and so they did not lose a single game throughout the whole of that season. And it was the first time that football really been into the Football League, and so this is why I guess it's more significant. I think uh, stunning achievements in both cases. Um Let's move on to top games. Uh, you, you put this out to your Twitter followers as well, so uh, jump in with any of those. But Alina's got one because it's basically the only match she knows the score for in history, haven't you? What's your favourite? <laughs> so I pick England 3, Hungary 6, Grey. This is the game. <laughs> Whenever you say, what game could you go back and watch in time? This for me is absolutely this game I mean this is ridiculous this game it, it gets a moment itself um, England uh, you know as, as you all know and as we as Welsh know are quite proud of their football history are proud of um, you know the fact that they consider themselves the founders of the game and by 1953 they'd never played anyone outside of um, the British Isles in, in any sort of proper format of a World Cup they'd, ne- they'd rejected the first two pre-war World Cups um, they went so they went to the 1950 World Cup and, and got beat and allow the group stage and so they're not a particularly strong side even though they consider themselves one of the best and then what they do is they invite this Hungarian side over in 1953 to play them at Wembley they're unbeaten at Wembley to anyone outside the British Isles and what they do is uh, lose 6-3 they get battered 6-3 by people like Pushkas and Koksic and Brozic um, and the people who are playing for that Hungarian side which we said earlier could have gone on and should have gone on to win the 54 World Cup not only that, England challenged them again in Hungary a couple of months later, six months later, in May 54, and they lose 7-1. So not only did this England side lose 6-3, they then challenge them again thinking they can better them away, and they lose 7-1. So for me, I think that's a really important moment. Have you seen the mural in Budapest? No. No, I've never seen uh, I'll put it when we tweet this uh, I will tweet a photo of it. It covers the entire side of a building um, and it's a mural dedicated to that game, I believe unless there's another game with a similar scoreline. No, it definitely is. Um, so I'll put that up because it is stunning. It like covers the entire... It's like the murals you see in Northern Ireland, so it covers the entire end of a block. Um, oh, really? And it has... Uh, but it's done like a photo and they've recreated the newspaper cut in as well, so it's awesome. But uh, I, I would never... I would get disowned and Charlie would never, ever forgive me if I did not raise Italy-Germany in 1970 as the best game ever. Yeah, I, I put put this into the book as uh, this is my dad's favourite game in history. Um, he uh, he remembers staying up uh, staying up late because he was allowed to um, when he was a kid um, to watch it, and he said it just blew his mind because you had West Germany were this uh, great team. Um, they'd lost the previous the previous final, um, and Italy were this side which had underachieved a lot ever since the 1949 Superga air disaster sort of really affected the sport in Italy. Um, but the club, the club scene was quite good, but they've been using this negative catenaccio style of football, which uh, translates to the chain. So uh, uh, you can't really break through and they're really defensively minded. But then all of a sudden, this game in extra time just springs into life and Italy sort of abandoned their usual style. 
and just go full press for the win. And uh, even though Germany uh, trade goals, then they end up winning 4-3. Uh, it's just an incredible match. Uh, you know, over 100,000 people watching it in the Azteca. You know, it's on colour TV. Uh, Franz Beckenbauer has broken his arm and he was playing on in the sling. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just an amazing match, which really um, showed that the 1970s might be about more attacking football compared to the 1960s, which was more defensive. Maybe not the greatest game, but I think my favourite ever. I love, still love watching the 1970 FA Cup final with Leeds. Apparently, David Ellery has said <laughs> that only nine men would have stayed on the pitch had this been played nowadays. Um, and who doesn't want to see Leeds getting brutally kicked up and down? But guys, have you got any Absolutely. other... Um, obviously, one of you is going to say Istanbul, but the greatest games ever. Uh, just just mentioning that uh, 1970 Chelsea game, that's another one of my dad's favourite matches. I remember when I was growing up, he was on uh, one of these channels, like a replay, and he showed it to me. I remember watching it in awe of these uh, horrendous, this horrendous tackles just flying in, you know, uh, Chopper Harris and stuff. It's just an amazing game. Alina, um, for, for someone who doesn't know, this game, basically, there's very little football and it's just an extent, extended, <laughs> brutal 90-minute fight with a ball that happens oh, to be like on the pitch at the same time. Sounds like Poland v Germany or Poland v <laughs> yeah. Russia or, or Poland v anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, best match. Well, personally, I think for for Gareth and I, we'd both say um, Wales three one Belgium uh, in twenty sixteen in the in the Euros. Um, with uh, you know, we we went into the tournament not expecting to even score, so to reach the quarterfinals and then. You know, beat Belgium was pretty amazing, and Hal Robson Carnu doing his best Johan Cruyff impression and and scoring despite not having a club. Uh, it was just incredible. It was like the first real time we could be properly proud to be Welsh football fans because usually it's all about rugby over here. But you know, the football the football won that day. It's funny, isn't it, that um, Belgium for me the the and never the. They've never been the sum of their parts with those players, which is uh, tragic. If they can get that together, they, they really would win the major trophy they deserve, I think. Oh, yeah, they were definitely, they were the dark horses. I mean, they've been the dark horses for years and years now. They haven't said they're the dark horses and they got put out by uh, Harry Robson, Carney and Sam Vogt. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, another one for me would be Aguero in... Um, 2012, Aguero winning the league, unbelievable. I mean, I, I was watching, I was in uni at this time, watching this in someone's house. It was me and sort of seven or eight Man United fans. It was me and an Everton fan wanting Man City to win. Unbelievable. When that goal went in, Balotelli, Aguero, my entire going crazy on commentary. I just, I, I, I will never forget that game or that goal. Just unbelievable, unbelievable scenes. See, I didn't I get to do it because I was on... I was at Chelsea, so we were we were in the tube carriage by that point, um, and there was just screaming going up and down because obviously you yeah. thought that um, they'd lost, and then suddenly someone said, "No, bloody Aguero scored again," and nobody could believe it. So yeah, that was. Uh, but unfortunately, I never did get to experience that, like from watching it live and seeing that all play out. Oh, it's ridiculous. And, and I'll give it to you, Ben, without you having to say, I think Istanbul's got to be there as well, isn't it? Istanbul was ridiculous. 3-0 down at half-time. So that side, when you look at the lineup, the AC Milan line it was unbelievable. And then they, they obviously they lose it in, on penalties. So, Ben, I think you can have that too. Yeah, I What's... think uh, the semi-final was good as well. <laughs> 
for us, actually, <laughs> Chelsea fans, everyone will also that season that we won it. We'll always talk about um, the Napoli game at home because we we were losing quite oh, yeah. <laughs> quite significantly after the first leg. Um, never known a night like um, Stamford Bridge. But uh, guys, give me a favourite moment in the book. G, you want to go first? That is a, that's a great question. I'll turn to the contents best. page now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, for me, I think it's just generally the 1950s uh, would be where, where I look to as my favourite bit of football history. Um, you get the, the 1950 World Cup and England being dumped out in the group stages, the miracle on grass, they lose to the USA and no one can believe it. Then you get... Um, the, the match of the century which is obviously England losing to Hungary and then the 54 World Cup which is just a brilliant brilliant World Cup and also the birth of the European Cup or you know what we are now the Champions League so for, there's like four moments there that cover the 1950s that we say probably when we, we debate it you could argue is football's best decade um, goals but also the birth of so many sort of tournaments and modern football as we know it today so I think I'd, I'd go to the 1950s Yeah I'd uh, I'd my two favourite to, to research was uh, Denmark winning the Euros because I didn't really know much about it. And uh, when the World Cup came to South, to South Africa in 2010. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, I, you I, did, I, didn't you? Yeah. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed researching the sort of uh, the cultural aspect of it and how what I meant for Africa and how they'd used all these uh, different African elements in, in everything in the tournament. So it was really, you know, ingrained that if this was Africa's time. And I did quite enjoy to uh, research that one. Although I have to say that in terms of the additions, they can keep the Vuvuzela because honestly, still I cringe <laughs> when I hear one of those. Uh, just Let's just get oh. your thoughts quickly because we are all, and sorry, Alina, we are all sitting here bereft because there's no football. Um, do you know what? I think Liverpool winning the league is like, the, no, there's not really a debate on there. How do you stand with what's going to happen? Like, that's going to be an easy decision to make. Essentially, somehow they'll get given the trophy, even though it means they can't say they won it or whatever. But for these teams that are fighting to survive or fighting to come up, I mean, Leeds have waited more than a decade for a chance like this and worked their way into position where they should be coming up. And then you've got teams that aren't safe but could have made themselves safe. What are they going to do? Uh, I think... Uh... It's strange that some a lot of people are calling for the season to be you know struck off, but I think it's much personally. I think it's more important to finish this one whenever that is before starting the next one. Obviously, I've got my Liverpool uh, element, but like you say, you've got uh, the teams that you know are fighting for survival, and you've also got you know Leeds and everyone trying to stay up. And it's the same across Europe. You know, lot, lots of leagues going through a really similar similar fortune. So. It's. Uh, I think it's much more important to finish this, just for the whole implications of what comes afterwards. Um, you know, who qualifies the Champions League? How do they work that out? It's. Uh, it's been much easier to just finish it off. I'm so torn on it. I, I agree. I think we do need to finish it, but. Like, it's not that I've lost interest in it, but it almost when football comes back, whether that's July, that's what they're saying now. I think. It'll almost it'll be weird. It'll be a strange, strange one. I, you know, if you could write it off and just give Liverpool a league, well then, yeah, just. It'd be, you can't. Of course, you can't do that because you know Villa have got a game in hand and they're in the relegation zone at the moment. And there's so many. 
different aspects to the season to be finished. Like uh, whether you could take it back to a point where all teams have played the same amount of games, but then you're cancelling games that have already happened. I, you know, it has to be finished. I understand it has to be finished, but the, the knock-on impact it could have because obviously if they play it in July and they say it'd be four weeks. Uh, and then, obviously, you're going to have to have a break. You have to. Before they play it, are you going to have to have a pre-season? Is it going to play behind closed doors? But if they do that, it's going to rinse you know, the lower league clubs. I think we can't just think Premier League. And, and you know, many people will just think Premier League. But you've also got to look right down to League Two and think the impact that it's going to have on clubs there. And so, whilst I think it has to finish, I do think it has to finish. It needs to be done in a way that doesn't hurt clubs financially, but also doesn't then impact football too long in the future. We always want to forget this ever happened you know you want to look back and tell your kids about it but not saying that it had this lasting impact on football so I don't know how they solve it I'm glad I'm not making decisions I'm glad someone else is making decisions I think they should uh, I think they should just strike the next season off get rid of the next season there you go gives you an age and what do you do I mean we, we, we'd be finished by August what, we, what do we do for there I, I don't know what happens uh, I feel uh, I don't know it depends yeah, it's the decisions now they're on about putting players in holding camps and Make getting it more concentrated, and that. it's just uh, it's. I, I sadly think there's not really, like I say, I, I think ultimately Liverpool will get what's coming, but um, it's the other clubs, it's people that um, are wholly reliant on their income and wholly reliant on ticket receipts and wholly reliant on those yeah, last few games to decide their fate. Yeah, it, it scares me a bit about, you know, football clubs will go under probably, uh, like many businesses. And, you know, that's the reality of this coronavirus, isn't it? Very sad. You know, I know the government are doing as much as they can to help businesses. Football clubs are likewise going to be hurt. And, and why they have to finish it is because even if they if they don't, Sky will probably rightly demand some of their money back. Um, and that will even hurt clubs. I don't know. You, for example, Bournemouth, who rely upon that television money, have already spent that television money. They need it. So that's why it has to be finished. But likewise, if we shorten next season or anything like that, then how is that going to work? So I, I really don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think the consensus of certainly the Chelsea season ticket holders that I've spoken to is that people are talking about, well, I've paid for X amount of games on my season ticket. I personally, if they keep that money and somehow it finds its way to clubs that are going to go under, I have no problem with them mm. keeping my money. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, yeah. guys, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've loved this. Alina is absolutely lost. But uh, have you learned something? <laughs> I have. I've learned a few things. Not very many. Still need to work these technical things out for me, like the offside. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> she, rang, she rang a friend of hers before we came on air and went, you know you like Arsenal? Tell me something about football. And he was like, what? <laughs> What? I can't school you for this now. <laughs> uh, anyway, so tomorrow we have a real treat for you. John Wolfe is going to be on, coming on with us to discuss his new book, The Wonders, the historical significance of Victorian freak shows. I've started reading the book and it's epic. It's brilliant. There's some awesome stuff in there. Um, and it, it ties in with circuses, uh, The Greatest Showman, for people who like singing along to that film. Um, but it, it is really interesting. It goes back to the very genesis of it all with uh, people, uh, well-to-do people collecting dwarves and using them as, the, as pets, basically. And it all sprung from there. So I can't wait. Um, Alina? Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Me neither. But, ladies and gentlemen, until then, it's goodbye from us. And remember, people... Stay safe whenever you possibly can. Stay at home. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. 